Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. This week we head back to January 2013 in Yorkshire. And we look at a really interesting and highly distressing case, which was referred to me by a listener, Becky the Biscuit Queen. Hello and thank you, Becky. Becky felt that it was a case that hadn't received as much attention as it deserved. And I agree with her. I was not aware of the case until she mentioned it to me. If there's a case you'd like me to cover, please just catch me on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook to let me know. A big thank you to my Patreon supporters this week. Andrew White, Jenna Lynn Prude, Kirby Raycraft and Podcast Addicted Gemma. Thank you all so much for your support, it's greatly appreciated. Before we start, let's remind ourselves of the music at the time. Number one in the UK and Canada was Scream and Shout by Will I Am featuring Britney Spears with the music from Les Miserables, number one in the UK album chart. In the US, it was Locked Out of Heaven by Bruno Mars. Elsewhere in the world, January 2013 was one of the rare months when we didn't have a major election in the UK. 130 wildfires across Australia's east coast forced thousands to evacuate their homes. Four climbers were killed by an avalanche in Glencoe, Scotland. The 2012-2013 NHL season finally began after a 119-day lockout. And Lance Armstrong admitted to doping in all seven of his Tour de France victories. So on to today's case. Keithley is a town in West Yorkshire. Around 10 miles northwest of the nearest city, Bradford, Keithley has a population of around 55,000. It's a pretty town close to the Pennines and the Yorkshire Moors. The most famous residents are probably the Bronte sisters who lived at Hayworth, just two miles away and Ricky Wilson of the Kaiser Chiefs was born here. Always worth mentioning the Kaiser Chiefs, as they all support the UK's premier football team, the mighty Leeds United. A young couple, Sharon Smith and Guy Earwaker, lived in a house near Keithley, with their four-year-old twins, Riley McKenzie, and the baby brother, Tyler. On January the 19th, 2013, there had been snow in Yorkshire. Along with the other young children nearby, the family had been out and enjoyed a great day sledging. And now the children were tucked up in bed, asleep, and Sharon and Guy relaxed together. Later that evening, there was a knock at the door, and it was Anwar Rossa, who they knew as Danny. Rossa lived opposite the couple, and he'd been friends with them for a few months after Guy had met him via a mutual friend. The couple liked spending time with Danny, and they'd helped the part-time chef to furnish his nearby flat, The three got on well. When he arrived, Danny had clearly had a few drinks. He'd been drinking at the nearby Bracken Arms pub, where he drank a great deal, and was feeling the effects of the drink, but he wasn't falling around drunk. He could still hold a conversation, he was coherent, and he was in control of his actions. He arrived with two women he'd been drinking with, and they stayed a while at the house. After a little while, the two women left, 
but Rossa remained. Eventually Sharon and Guy told Rossa that they really wanted to go to bed, but Rossa asked if he could stay the night, telling them that he thought there were people outside to whom he owed money and he was scared that he was going to get beaten up. It was late, so the couple thought, okay, that's fine, and they let him sleep on the sofa downstairs. At around 4.30am, Sharon Smith woke to find Rossa at the side of her bed, curled up into a ball, seemingly asleep, with his head down. Clearly concerned by this strange behaviour, as you would be, Sharon told him to get out of the bedroom. But rather than leaving, Rossa asked for some tobacco, and he said he was sorry. In a panic, Sharon woke Guy, who told Rossa to leave immediately. Rossa responded strangely that he'd been there for some time, but he did eventually leave the bedroom. Shortly after Rossa had gone downstairs, Sharon needed to use the bathroom. Understandably worried by Rossa's odd behaviour, she asked Guy to check that Rossa was not in there hiding. Guy got out of bed and left the bedroom. He noticed a blade on the floor of the bedroom from an electric knife which he'd been using earlier that day. He went onto the landing and he saw the light on in Riley's bedroom, their four-year-old son. He entered the bedroom and there he discovered a scene of, well, absolute unimaginable horror. The blood-stained body of the young boy lay before him on the bed. Unable to speak, he went back into the main bedroom. He just couldn't say anything. Sharon could see something was wrong, obviously, and followed him out to see Riley dead on his bed with his throat cut and multiple stab wounds. Sharon screamed, and it was only after her blood-curdling reaction that Guy heard the front door slam downstairs and he realised that Rossa had left the house. Snapping back into action, Guy raced down the stairs and out of the house chasing Rossa down the street, carrying the blade he'd picked up in the bedroom. He shouted threats at Rossa, but Rossa turned and shouted, told him to F off in response. Rossa managed to get away, and Guy returned home to his family. He desperately carried the body of Riley to the next-door neighbour's house, seeking assistance. The emergency services were called, and paramedics attended and took Riley to hospital, but there was nothing to be done. The little boy was pronounced dead at 6am, with the cause of death, strangulation and stab wounds. Police immediately started to scan the local area for Rossa, and thankfully it didn't take long to find him. Later that morning he was discovered in a caravan he broke it into on a small holding nearby. There were blood smears on the caravan and on the snow surrounding it. Rossa said to the brother of the man who discovered him, I've ruined my life. After the police had been called and Rossa was arrested, he began to cry. And at the police station he said, What have I gone and done, huh? All of these reactions suggest that, at the time, he was completely aware of what he had done, despite later making a completely false claim that he'd suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder and could remember nothing of the events of the night. He continued to weep as he was handcuffed, and after being taken to a police station that morning, Rossa said, I know I've done summit, but I don't know what. He later admitted to a nurse that he was the lowest of the low because of what he had done but he refused to answer any questions when he was interviewed by the police. So just who was Anwar, or Danny, Rossa? Let's cut to the chase here. In essence, Rossa was a lying, deceitful child who grew up into a sadistic psychopath. Adopted by a professional couple when he was five, he'd been given a loving upbringing in a stable home. But despite this opportunity of a comfortable home life, 
He was in trouble from an early age, starting fires from age eight and bullying other children. He'd set fire to a barn using petrol, which led to a major blaze by the time he was 13. Age 16, he carried out a chilling and motiveless attack on an innocent sleeping victim when he smashed a trophy onto the head of another 16-year-old who was crashed out in a bedroom during a house party, leaving the terrified victim requiring more than four stitches. Rosser enlisted in the British Army at 17 and was posted to 5 Regiment Royal Artillery. He did not see active service and he was aggressive after he'd been drinking. At one stage, he was imprisoned at a military corrective training centre for being absent without leave and in the end he was discharged from the army when he was 21. Once he left the army, he drifted from job to job. He never really settled down and he'd never been in a serious relationship. By 2005, Rosser was diagnosed with alcohol dependence syndrome. He was even more violent when he'd been drinking alcohol, shouting at walls and punching them. But then when he was sober, he was a quiet and nervous man. In 2010, he was arrested, saying he wanted to kill someone with a knife. But he was let back out on the streets. He was then admitted for mental health assessment at the Airedale Centre for Mental Health in Yorkshire in early 2011, after he self-harmed. While on a ward at the centre, he wasn't exactly a joy to have around. He was seen intoxicated with alcohol and covered in blood, threatening to smash empty beer bottles into the faces of both staff and other patients. Not able to stay here for long, he then stayed at a Salvation Army hostel in Bradford, but there again he caused problems with his drink-fuelled anger. By January 2013, where this story began, Rosser had managed to secure a job and a flat, and he was working as a part-time chef. He actually used a knife stolen from the kitchen to kill little Riley. He took it to Riley's home that night, and carried three further knives from the house upstairs with him. At his trial at Bradford Crown Court, Rosser admitted the murder of Riley. Paul Greeny, prosecuting, told the court, By any standard... The circumstances of the killing were appalling, involving a savage level of violence. The court heard it might never actually be known why Rosser carried out the attack. The details of the attack are incredibly difficult to listen to, but I'm going to provide them here in detail, just so you understand the savagery of what actually happened. I don't usually go into this level of detail as you know, but I think today it's important, so here goes. Riley's face, chin and jaw bore marks which demonstrated he'd been strangled. There were 30 separate stab wounds to multiple parts of Riley's body. These included 14 wounds to the neck, including a large stab wound to the centre of the neck, which penetrated deeply and severed the windpipe. Additional stab wounds penetrated deeply into that large wound and partially severed his spine. In addition, there were five stab wounds to the back, five stab wounds to the chest, which penetrated the lungs, one of which completely transfixed the lung, six stab wounds to the abdomen, and one stab wound to the left side of the scrotum, which was deep and severe. Disturbingly, a marker pen was found inside his rectum, as was a coat hanger. In addition, there was a deep bite mark on the outside of Riley's upper left thigh, and this was identified as a bite mark caused by Rosser. It was also noted that Riley went to bed wearing pyjamas, but he was found about his pyjama bottoms. They were recovered from the foot of the bed, wet with urine and bloodstained. The forensic evidence suggests they were removed after they become wet with urine 
and after Riley had sustained at least some of his injuries. Two experts called by the court agreed that there was a very strong sexual motivation to the crime. Sorry, I know that these details are incredibly hard to listen to, but in this case, I just think we have to understand just what a monster this man was. After the murder, medical experts concluded that Rosser had an antisocial personality disorder. The Crown psychiatrist, Dr John Kent, found that Rosser presented an immediate and grave risk to the public and could lead to further acts of sadistic homicide and more child victims. There was, as you'd expect, a sombre mood in the court as the judge returned for sentencing. Rosser was flanked by five security guards as he sat with his head bowed in the dock. He did not react throughout the sentencing, while Riley's family sobbed loudly from the packed public gallery. It was, by all accounts, as distressing a scene as has ever been seen at Bradford Crown Court. The judge, Mr Justice Coulson, branded Rosser an exceptionally dangerous man who had shown appalling savagery. The judge noted that his personality disorder didn't reduce his criminal culpability or his responsibility for the crime, adding, It appears that you knew full well what you were doing when you were doing it, even if you now say you have no memory of the crime. Another aggravating factor, according to the judge, was that the murder was carried out in gross breach of the trust that Riley's parents had shown in you. They had taken pity on you and allowed you to stay, trusting you to share their home with their children. Your response was a savage murder of their son as he slept in his own bed. I consider that the murder was premeditated. While I am sure it had not been long planned, it was clearly premeditated because you went upstairs armed with four knives, including your own knife, a knife you had stolen from the restaurant where you worked, which you had brought to the house and subsequently took upstairs to Riley's bedroom. When you went upstairs, you clearly intended to kill or cause really serious harm using that knife. No other conclusion is tenable. The judge also commented on the horrendously sadistic angles of the murder. Going back to when Sharon and Guy told him to leave their bedroom, the judge said, Eventually you left their bedroom, but you did not leave the house. Instead, you waited downstairs. The only conclusion I can draw from that was that you waited so that you could hear the devastated reaction of Riley's parents when they found the body. Let's quickly pause to reflect on this. Can you even comprehend how someone would take pleasure in hearing the reaction of the parents discovering the murdered body of their son? It's so hard to believe, isn't it? Judge Coulson concluded he had no choice but to jail Rosser for life. There were emotional scenes in the public gallery as the judge ordered he remain behind bars for the rest of his natural life. This sentence meant that Rosser became only the 54th prisoner in the UK to be on a whole life tariff. As Judge Coulson told Rosser he would spend the rest of his life in prison, Riley's parents jumped up and clapped, shouting, Yes, rot in hell. Victim impact statements read in court showed just how much the family's life has been devastated. They said, While justice has now been done, no sentence will ever be enough for what we are going through and what that man has done to our family. It will not bring our little man back. They do their best to describe the indescribable, the effect on a close-knit family of the violent death of a bright, lively, happy and innocent four-year-old boy. Riley's mum, Sharon, said, I wish I'd told that monster no that night when he asked if he could sleep. He said people were outside his house and were going to beat him up and I believed him. I didn't want him to get beaten up. But all along, he'd a knife in his pocket, 
plotting to hurt one of us or all of us. I feel so much guilt that my poor son had to go through such horrific things because my kind heart didn't want to let that monster get beaten up. Now my kind heart cost me my son's life. I don't feel like ever being nice to people at all except for my family. The guilt eats at me every day. What he's done is unforgivable. He's ruined our lives. I don't look forward to life anymore. I wake up now and just want to be with my son, Riley, so he's not alone. I just can't bear to think he's sad and alone. I try every day to keep my other sons happy and to help them get through every day. He never spent a minute away from his twin brother. They did everything together. If Riley got a packet of crisps, he would get the same. And now he has to choose everything himself. He always cries and says he's got no one to play with. It's very upsetting to hear my boy cry for his brother all the time and wonder where he's gone and why he isn't coming back. Some questions I can't answer to my boy. I try my best, but I don't understand myself and I never will. She continued that he was such a caring and loving child and she was enduring just a complete bad nightmare without him. The monsters hurt us so much, we will never recover from this. She ended by saying that Riley's identical twin brother Mackenzie regularly asks why he can't go to the sky to play with his brother. Speaking after the sentencing, Detective Superintendent Mark Ridley, the senior investigating officer, said, This has been an incredibly horrifying and tragic case, which has had a profound effect on all those involved in the investigation. And you can imagine the poor police officers that were involved in this investigation and turned up on the scene. It must be, must have been absolutely horrendous for them. Riley was a very much loved son, grandson and brother who would be deeply missed by his family and friends. He abused the kindness and compassion shown to him by Riley's family when they allowed him to stay in the safety of their own home. He has shown no remorse or compassion for the pain suffered by Riley's family, has offered no explanation for his savage and gratuitous actions. The death of Riley in such circumstances provides a clear indication that Rosser prevents a significant danger to all those who may come into contact with him, which is reflected in the whole life sentence imposed upon him today. Astonishingly, in March 2014, Rosser's legal team lodged an appeal against the whole life sentence, and an appeal court judge ruled that it should progress to a full court hearing. This appeal was to be held alongside the case of another evil man, Jamie Reynolds. Do you know this case? If not, like Rosser, the actions of this man are almost impossible to comprehend, so let me just give you a really brief outline of what he did. By the time Reynolds was 22, having amassed 16,800 images and 72 videos of sexual violence, he progressed to murder. Reynolds lured former head girl Georgia Williams, who was just 17, to his home tricking her that it was for an artistic photo shoot involving a simulation hanging, when there he took pictures before, during and after strangling her to death, before dumping her body in woodland. Investigators discovered that before the murder, he had written a series of violent stories, including one called George's Surprise, in which he imagined watching her body dance as she died by hanging. Prosecutors described Reynolds as a sexual deviant, who had a morbid fascination with extreme violence to young women. He'd gone from being a voyeur to following the script he had dreamed up for Georgia. The sentencing judge, Justice Wilkie, accepted a psychiatric assessment that Reynolds had the potential to become a serial killer. He told Reynolds, 
You enjoyed the spectacle of her final ghastly moments as she struggled for life, knowing you'd betrayed her. The judge also told Reynolds his crime was not an aberration. He'd lured at least two other girls back to his home but they'd escaped. This danger he posed is why he took the step of sentencing such a young man to a full life sentence. I'm sorry that I've only just summarised this case for you quickly, but if you can stomach it, take a look at the full horrific details. Like Rossa, it's the sort of case you can't help reading about, whilst at the same time the human in you just wants to stop, as you can't believe that such people exist, they can actually do these things. But sadly, as you will know as someone who listens to this and other true crime podcasts, they do. So back to the appeal. Luckily, sense in the UK legal system prevailed, and both Rosser and Reynolds had their case rejected by three judges at the Court of Appeal in London. The court announced that in both cases, there was no basis on which it can properly be argued that whole life order was not required. The punishment handed out for the horrific murders was just, said Lord Thomas, so both men are now in jail for the rest of their normal lives, unless a fellow prisoner exacts retribution. So what do you think of the appeal? Surely it's impossible not to agree with the judges in these two cases. Although I'm opposed to the death sentence, I think there are cases where it's difficult to see the benefit of keeping these people alive for the rest of their lives, don't you? It's similar to Moore's murderer Ian Brady's recent death. If you don't know the case, listen to the recent Case File podcast which covered it expertly. Brady's death was widely celebrated in the UK and worldwide. But to keep him in prison for 52 years cost the taxpayer £10.4 million. Yep, £10.4 million. Wouldn't this money have been better spent compensating the victims? I also wonder about the legal companies who represented Rosser and Reynolds at the Court of Appeal. When you hear them quoted, they speak, to my mind, utter nonsense about it being important to test the law and open a debate about full life sentences. In reality... I suggest that their motivations for taking on the case are much more grubby than the lofty intellectual reasons put forward by these companies. I try to steer away from giving clear opinions on anything in this podcast, well, except for some of the music, of course. But for the lawyers in these cases, I say shame on them, I really do. I certainly would never use these firms on principle. I'm sure you'll agree that today, more than ever, it's been a really difficult case to listen to. The murder of any child is horrendous, but the abuse of trust by Rossa is just staggering. When I first researched the case, I couldn't quite comprehend what I was reading. Although we feel sorry for him during the tough first five years of life, I'm afraid that the sympathy has to stop there. His reaction to being caught is interesting, the crying and self-pity about his life being ruined. I wonder whether this was staged or a natural reaction. Anyway, I don't want to spend any more time talking about Rossa. Let's just leave him to slowly fade away in his prison cell and give him no further publicity. It's even a name I just want to forget. Our thoughts have to be with Riley's family, who will be living a nightmare for the rest of their lives. Although, of course, he wished them the very best for the future, I just don't know how they'll ever be able to come to terms with what's happened to them. Do you? Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast and thanks again to Becky the Biscuit for the recommendation. If you know the case I should cover, please do contact me, Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. 
All that matters to me, it's a lesser known case, because as you well know, there are enough podcasts covering the major cases. If you want to check out the three bonus episodes, plus all the other benefits of being a Patreon supporter for just £3 a month, please head to patreon.com forward slash UK true crime. That is all for me. So until we speak again on Tuesday, have a good one. Cheerio. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.